Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcasts at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with the schedule of English language broadcast, or it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from NHK Japan, France 24, and Radio Havana, Cuba. We will begin with NHK World Radio Japan, an update on the terrible New Year's Day earthquake that affected central Japan. Taiwan has an important presidential election this weekend, and a group of Jewish Americans staged a surprise protest at the United Nations headquarters in New York, NHK Japan. We begin in central Japan, where a massive earthquake on New Year's Day has now claimed 213 lives in Ishikawa Prefecture. Eight people are believed to have died from causes related to the disaster after initially evacuating to safety. Authorities are focusing on the most vulnerable survivors to ensure the figure does not rise. Officials in Ishikawa are asking nearby prefectures to accept elderly residents of nursing care homes with no power or water. A self-defense force helicopter was seen Thursday transporting senior citizens to Aichi Prefecture. More than 23,000 citizens are staying at 400 municipal shelters such as school gymnasiums. Authorities want to move vulnerable evacuees to hotels and other types of accommodation. The central government is trying to secure lodgings for 10,000 people by the end of the week. At least 2,500 people are still isolated due to damaged roads and railways. A self-defense force medical team flew to Otani town where about 200 people have been stranded since the quake. Harsh weather is compounding the stress for many survivors. Rainfall and a severe cold snap are forecast on Friday in some of the hardest hit areas. Officials are warning of possible landslides and they're urging people to take measures against hypothermia. Now to Taiwan, where voters go to the polls on Saturday to choose their next president. The candidates have been making their final pitch to voters, focusing on Taiwan's future relationship with China. Lai Ching-te, Taiwan's current vice president, is running for the ruling Democratic Progressive Party. He intends to continue its policy of deterring Chinese influence by strengthening ties with the United States and other democracies. In the face of the threat from China, we have to unite even more in our hearts. Ho Yi is the candidate for the main opposition Kuomintang Party. He accuses the DPP of stoking tensions with China and is pushing for more dialogue with Beijing. The Taiwan Strait is described as the most tense place in the world, but I will keep the peace. Finally, Ku Wunjie is running for the Taiwan People's Party, which he founded in 2019. He's criticized the two largest parties and is pitching himself as a centrist candidate. Taiwan! 
Taiwan doesn't belong just to the DPP or the Kuomintang. The Taiwan People's Party will win the election and take back Taiwan. The campaign has been overshadowed by Beijing. Chinese President Xi Jinping has shown a strong desire for unification with Taiwan and says he will not renounce the use of force to achieve this goal. But Beijing is also hoping to win over people in Taiwan, especially young voters, through economic means. Last September, China unveiled a plan to make its southeastern province of Fujian a showcase for integrated development with Taiwan. Under the scheme, China will create an environment that encourages Taiwanese firms to do business there. Back in the U.S., a group of Jewish Americans staged a surprise protest at the U.N. headquarters in New York. They're demanding the U.S. government support an immediate ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. About 40 demonstrators gained access to the building after posing as tourists. They protested in the galleries of the General Assembly Hall and the Security Council Chamber. The rooms were mostly empty as no UN conferences were scheduled at the time, and the group was eventually removed by security personnel. The protest continued outside. We're here to tell the United Nations to do your job, to stop letting the United States block this important vote, to let the Security Council and the General Assembly save the lives of innocent Palestinian civilians by bringing about a permanent and lasting ceasefire. The protesters accused the Biden administration of vetoing resolutions that could save lives. Every day the war continues is a day where more and more Palestinians are killed, more and more Palestinians are injured and expelled from their homes, and more and more Jews are threatened and more and more Jews are put at risk. This is not for anyone's safety. They also say the U.S. is isolating itself on the world stage by not doing more to end the fighting. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. On shortwave, they are now heard at 9 p.m. at 13735 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. They're also up on most podcast sites, as is the shortwave report. All the times I announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. Next, France 24. An update on the war in Gaza with Shana Lowe from the Norwegian Refugee Council. She describes the worsening scene in Gaza, the possible expulsion of Palestinians from their country, and what citizens in other countries can do. Then an interview with Professor Karim Batar, an associate research fellow at the Middle East Institute, on hope in the war on Gaza and the risk of fighting to spread into Lebanon and the entire region. France 24. The fighting, meanwhile, continues in Gaza. Israeli forces have expanded their operations in the southern part of the Strip, raiding a militant compound in Han Yunis and killing some 40 Palestinian fighters. The offensive has already killed over 23,000 Palestinians and devastated large parts of the Gaza Strip, forcing close to 85 percent of its population to flee. Well, we're going to take a closer look at the humanitarian situation now with Shana Lowe. You're the communication advisor at the Norwegian Refugee Council. Thank you so much for for joining us, Shana. What are you hearing from your teams on the ground? What's the situation like at the moment for civilians in Gaza? 
What we're hearing is what we've been hearing from our colleagues for the last three months, just that the situation continues to get worse and worse and worse. For three months, there has been no safe space in Gaza. Continuous Israeli orders to leave and flee uh, different areas of Gaza has resulted in uh, almost more than 85% of the population, almost 2 million people being internally displaced. Those, many of those people have been internally displaced multiple times due to repeated orders to, to flee or ongoing bombardments. We're hearing about overcrowded shelters. We're hearing about people at risk of starvation because of the lack of aid getting in. The, the amount of, of assistance going into the people of Gaza is nowhere near where it needs to be. The UN is warming of famine um, and a quarter of the population already at risk of starvation because of the lack of supplies getting into Gaza. And it's not just about the supplies getting into Gaza, but it's also about being able to reach all areas of Gaza. And the Northern Gaza Strip remains effectively severed from the South, making it, and as well as the center and, and even Khan Yunus, making it incredibly difficult for humanitarian agencies such as NRC and our partners to be able to access communities in need and provide them with assistance. On top of that, we're hearing reports that humanitarians seeking access to certain areas are, are not being granted access by Israeli authorities. And then finally, the other major concern that we have and have had for a long time since the first um, so-called evacuation order on October 13th is that there's the risk of, of mass expulsion of Palestinians outside of the Gaza Strip. This is a grave violation of international law and something that we are increasingly concerned about as Palestinians continue to flee further and further south, seeking some type of safety. And, and your organization, the Norwegian Refugee Council, has warned, like you just did, that any attempts by Israel to, to permanently deport, displace Palestinians within and from Gaza would constitute a breach of international law and a, a crime of atrocity. Do you believe that Israel would be brought to justice on that charge? Judging by past conflicts uh, in Gaza, uh, there hasn't been accountability for either parties in the past, but that lack of accountability is what has allowed situations like this to spiral out of control, where the civilian casualty toll and just the toll on civilians in terms of injuries, loss of, of livelihoods, loss of homes, is the destruction, devastation is so great. We need accountability in order to restore not only the Palestinian people, but the international community's faith in the international legal order. At this point, so long as Israelis are, are allowed to go and continue to displace Palestinians, continue to violate their laws without any form of accountability, it's going to allow for this to happen in the future. There must be accountability, though past uh, experience shows that it's very, very difficult to, to achieve. Shana, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is now on his fourth trip to the region, but the language from the U.S. does seem to be changing, more emphasis on the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Are you hopeful that Blinken's trip might help change something, really? It's been three months of this, and, and what is happening, the, the shifts in discourse that we are seeing are needed. They are late, but they are needed. But we need not just shifts in discourse, but we need to see that there are changes actually happening on the ground. We've heard reports, you know, that Israel has shifted its strategy 
250 people were killed in Gaza in the last day. So that doesn't indicate necessarily a shift in strategy or a, um, a lessening of the intensity of the hostilities. So we need to hear more than just rhetoric. We need to see action on the ground that there is efforts to protect civilians, to distinguish civilians from legitimate military objectives. Um, but for now, we have not seen that. We need the international community, particularly the United States, which has so much influence, to continue to put pressure on Israel and to increase that pressure uh, in order to, to protect civilian life. Shana, so many people who have been watching the news over the past three months keep seeing these numbers that just keep getting worse and worse, the situation that just keeps getting worse and worse. Is there anything that people, just general people around the world, can do to help? They need to be calling on their political leaders to be calling for a permanent, sustained ceasefire. That is the only way that we can stop this madness. This conflict between Palestinians and Israelis will never be resolved through military means. They can only be resolved through peaceful means. And so we need the international community, we need ordinary citizens to continue to pressure their political leadership to push for a ceasefire, to call for a ceasefire, and to allow for a massive scaling up and increase of humanitarian assistance and aid into Gaza. There is so much devastation, and the only way to hemorrhage that destruction and devastation and loss of life is to stop hostilities immediately then we as humanitarians can go in and work with communities on the ground to start the reconstruction process, which at this point will take not weeks or months, but years. Thank you for that, Shana Lowe, the communication advisor at the Norwegian Refugee Council. We can cross to Beirut, where we can speak to Karim Bittar, professor of Middle East Studies. Karim, good to talk to you. As we speak, we have said uh, Antony Blinken is in Greece right now. We'll be arriving uh, within the next few hours, possibly the next 24 hours in Israel. What's your sense, this fourth visit by him to the region, are there any more reasons for hope this time? Well, I'm afraid this force of Lincoln Middle East tour since the October 7 massacres will not prove more successful, more fruitful than the previous visits. It appears that the Americans are finding it increasingly hard to provide an incentive for the Israelis to finally take another look at some of their actions, which they must know in advance jeopardize the region's security. Uh, Israel attacked the southern suburbs of Beirut a couple of days ago without even informing its U.S. ally. So there is a genuine risk of a wider uh, regional conflict. Today, the situation was increasingly tense at the Lebanese-Israeli border. And uh, there are also domestic American political considerations. We are entering an electoral year. Joe Biden and Anthony Blinken are fully aware that the Democratic Party is starting to lose part of its younger generation voters and part of significant parts, if not all, of the Arab and Muslim American communities in the United States. And this could make a difference in several swing states. So ultimately, Joe Biden could become one of this war's uh, uh, collateral victims. Yeah, it's a pretty bleak assessment, Kareem. I guess for Anthony Blinken arriving there, he wants to get something out of this. You know, we're talk we heard from our correspondent in Jerusalem a short while ago that 
One of the reasons briefed by uh, the White House will be about the next phase of war, how you start to get a resolution in Israeli troops out. Now, Yoav Gallant, the Defence Secretary in Israel, had put forward this post-war plan of sorts, not yet official from the government, but saying that there will be no Hamas in the region after the war, but there will be Israeli presence, there will also be Egyptian presence, and some kind of Palestinian set-up there as well. It seemed quite vague. What was your sense of the post-war plan? Indeed, I had a feeling that it was not only vague, but extremely theoretical. It's only understandable that Israel would ask for a complete demilitarization of Gaza. However, you still have uh, conflicting statements emanating from senior members of the Israeli government. At the time when Mr. Gallant was presenting uh, this uh, plan that is uh, quite uh, ambitious, but uh, very difficult to turn into anything practical, some of his colleagues were still uh, openly calling for an ethnically uh, cleansed Gaza for uh, a reduction of Gaza's population from 2 million to 150,000 to 200,000. So mm. the time has come for the Americans to increase pressure on Mr. Netanyahu to put some order in Israeli policy yeah. and finally rein in those extremist uh, government ministers. Karim, can I get your, your brief thought on this? You're in Beirut. We're hearing the, the rhetoric of uh, Nassan Hasrallah, the Hezbollah chief. Suggestion seems to be that they are beginning of step up, stepping up attacks. And yet, if you look at recent analysis, Western analysis saying that some of the fighters actually withdrawn Hezbollah fighters two, three kilometres away from the border. Do you see that as potentially a, a sign of de-escalation? I'm afraid we have not yet reached the scale, the state of de-escalation. Hassan Nasrallah's two recent speeches were quite uh, virulent, uh, extremely threatening. And uh, the reason why I was referring to these Israeli governmental statements is that they are actually a gift from God for Hezbollah, because they uh, allow Hezbollah to present itself as a necessary deterrent force against the new Israeli invasion of Lebanon. So we have a feeling of being held hostage in this part of the world by a messianic right-wing Israeli government and radical Islamist groups. Uh, uh, and these two movements are feeding off of one another. And this is why the situation mm -hmm. has become uh, extremely dangerous. And it's really up to the United States, because only the United States can increase the pressure on the Israelis to put an end to this uh, carnage in Gaza. Karim Vitar, professor of Middle East studies based in Beirut. Those interviews were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. They are also available at most podcast sites. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could help support this listener-funded program, as a longtime listener in Boonville, California did this week, PayPal contact information is available at my website, outfarpress.com, or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Your support helps the weekly production and distribution of this show, which is supplied without cost to more than 100 radio stations across the globe. We will conclude with Radio Havana, Cuba. The United Nations Emergency Relief Chief says Gaza has become a place of death and despair, with the levels of food insecurity the highest ever recorded. Activists around the world have signed up to a Global Day of Action 
on Saturday, January 13th, demanding a permanent ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. Then a viewpoint on Ecuador, which has become the most violent country in Latin America and where 27% of the population live in poverty. Radio Havana, Cuba. Israel's bombardment of Gaza has entered its fourth month as the United Nations' top humanitarian official warns the relentless assault has left Gaza uninhabitable. According to Palestinian health officials, the death toll in Gaza has topped 23,000, including almost 10,000 children. United Nations Emergency Relief Chief Martin Griffiths said Gaza has become, quote, a place of death and despair. He said Gaza is on the verge of famine as it faces the highest levels of food insecurity ever recorded. The United Nations reports there are just five doctors remaining in Al-Aqsa Hospital, the largest hospital in central Gaza, which is coming under reported attacks by Israel. Over the weekend, Doctors Without Borders and other aid groups withdrew from the hospital. The World Health Organization says 600 patients have been forced to evacuate the hospital. The whereabouts of those former patients are now unknown. Sean Casey, the WHO medical team coordinator, spoke from inside the hospital. Quote, there are patients coming in every few minutes and it's really a chaotic scene. The hospital director just spoke to us and he said his one request is that this hospital be protected. Even though many of his staff have left, even though this hospital is under enormous pressure, the one request that the hospital director said is that the international community needs to make sure that this hospital and other hospitals like it stay protected, that they do not get struck that they do not get evacuated, that they're able to continue functioning. That is the critical message for today. Since the beginning of the Israeli onslaught against Gaza, the frontier between Lebanon and the occupied territories has seen deadly exchange of fire, mainly between Israeli military and Hezbollah. Three months of cross-border fire have killed 175 people in Lebanon, including three journalists with reports saying Israel has repeatedly used U.S. supplies internationally banned white phosphorus munitions in its attacks on Lebanon. The assassination of Hamas Deputy Chief Saleh al-Aruri by the Israeli regime in southern Beirut on January 2nd has escalated tensions between the two sides. Activists in a number of countries worldwide have signed up to a global day of action that will see marches take place on January the 13th, demanding an end to Israel's genocidal campaign in the besieged Gaza Strip. The demonstrations will be held a day before the 100th day of Israel's atrocities in Gaza. 4% of the population in Gaza have been either killed, injured or gone missing since early October. UK-based advocacy groups organizing the initiative say the marches seek to mobilize people to demand a permanent ceasefire. Events are planned in dozens of cities across the countries, including United States, Britain, Canada, France, Germany, Switzerland, Denmark, South Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, Japan, Indonesia, South Korea, Australia, Brazil, Jordan and Turkey, amongst others. Palestinian Forum, one of several British groups organizing the move, said the growing number of cities joining the global action, quote, reflects a shared commitment to ending the violence in Gaza. Together we stand united in the Gaza Global Action Campaign, sending a resounding message that the world demands change, justice, and a future free from violence.
The Palestinian Forum said the grim reality in Gaza and discussed the urgent need for international attention, humanitarian aid and a concerted effort towards achieving a just and lasting resolution to the conflict. Calls to join the Global Day of Action have been shared widely on social media using the hashtags ceasefirenow, end the siege and free Palestine. Ismail Patel, the chair of the pro-Palestinian Friends of Al-Aqsa group, has said the demonstrations principally seek to empower the international community to challenge Israel's allies. Quote, the Global Day of Action hopes to highlight the worldwide condemnation of Israel's relentless bombing and siege of Gaza, which is claiming around 300 lives a day, the ongoing ethnic cleansing in the West Bank, the discrimination against Palestinians within Israel, the dehumanizing of Palestinians by Israeli leaders, and Israel's provocative attacks targeting Syria and Lebanon. The groups that have organized the pro-Palestinian Day of Action spearheaded protests against the U.S. war in Iraq on February 15, 2003. Those demonstrations were held in more than 600 cities worldwide and drew in millions of people. Since October 7, Washington has already vetoed two United Nations Security Council resolutions calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. In a last-ditch effort in December, South Africa filed a case against Israel in the International Court of Justice, accusing the regime of genocide in Gaza. The hearing is scheduled for January the 11th and 12th. Israel has been bombing hospitals, schools, supply vehicles, and even United Nations-run facilities in Gaza since October the 7th. With over 7,000 murders, Ecuador ended 2023 as the most violent country in Latin America. In this context, the proposal of President Daniel Noboa is a popular consultation on security, which for the vast majority is useless and will not solve the growing problem of insecurity. Social organizations, including political allies of the government and opponents, question the holding of a referendum for the unnecessary waste of resources when the nation is going through a difficult economic situation. In the opinion of many, the $60 million that would be used to carry out this referendum should be used to improve the living conditions of the citizens of the country, where poverty reaches 27% of the population and extreme poverty reaches almost 11%. This was stated by members of the National Union of Educators of Ecuador, who stressed that these resources would be better used in programs aimed at children and young people to prevent them from being recruited by criminal groups due to difficult family circumstances. According to 11 questions proposed by the government, the consultation essentially seeks the intervention of the armed forces in the fight against crime to toughen penalties for criminals and to promote casinos or gambling halls as an economic activity. Precisely the question on the activation of casinos and gambling houses has awakened great concern among citizens, as they are ideal places, as many have pointed out, for the laundering of money from organized crime. The Constitutional Court is evaluating the questions, and if they are validated, a popular consultation will be called, which has been received coldly and with numerous criticisms by the citizens, who already in February 2023 rejected at the polls the eight questions promoted by the then-president Guillermo Lasso, referring to security, institutionality, political representation, and environment. 
Those reports and viewpoint were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radio8c.cu, though there's no podcasts. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6000, 6060, or 6165. At their website, radio8c.cu, you can stream the English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Standard Time. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find information for online support. There's a link at my website along with a podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 26 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I am recuperating from spinal surgery, I am staying at a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.